Welcome to the Innovate for Impact podcast. This podcast is for leaders in the social sector like you who want to make a difference. Each episode is packed with practical ideas on how you can be more innovative and create an even bigger social impact. We share our ideas on what you can do and also speak to leaders from the sector to share best practice. So let's get into it and let's talk impact. Hey, you're listening to the Innovate for Impact podcast. You've got Dan Bentley here and Tracy Newman. And today we're joined by Aaron Mercer. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Great to have you here. Hey, before we do get into it today, just wanted to do an acknowledgement of country. So I'm in Melbourne, so I'm based on the lands of the Boonarong people of the Kulin Nations. And I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. I record here in Adelaide, so I would like to acknowledge the Ghana as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains region and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. And I'm joining you today from Brisbane, so I would like to uh, acknowledge the traditional owners who are the Turbal people and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Awesome. So I was having a beer a couple of weeks ago at the Opera Bar in Sydney with some friends and I met this gentleman who's the CTO of this organisation called Exceptional and he was telling me a little bit about this amazing work that this organisation did and I was like, I've got to have somebody on the podcast from this organization. He introduced us to us, Aaron. So you want to tell us a little bit about your organization, Exceptional, and and what you do? And look, really thankful for, um, yeah, the opportunity and and that beer. Um, Yeah, Gareth and I did Rock, Paper, Scissors, and and, and I won to come and do the the podcast. Yeah, so I'm I'm, I'm Aaron. I'm part of the team that started Exceptional. Uh, We launched in, in 2017. We are an organization that connects people who are neurodivergent, people who are autistic, dyslexic, ADHDers like me with uh, open employment and we also train employers on how to be more inclusive uh, through the lens of neurodivergence. Yeah, it's really interesting what you're doing there and what I loved about your organisation too is that uh, when you're looking at neurodiversity, you're not just thinking about some of those traditional roles that are popular for people in that space such as tech, you're looking at a very broad how do we solve the employment problem in that space. Yeah, it's a good point, Dan. And one of the things that we often encounter when we go into organisations is, um, yeah, look, there's curiosity around uh, neurodivergence. It's worth noting that it's a lot more prevalent than most people think. You're talking about 15%, you know, one in seven, one in eight, depending on what report you read. So it's more common in society. It's more common in organisations. But the stereotype says that neurodivergent people, particularly those that are autistic, can do roles that are individual contributor roles, they're not great leaders necessarily, they can't be good with customers, and often they're funneled into roles in technology. And so a lot's been written about programs that Microsoft or SAP have run around the world, and we wanted to challenge that from day one. So yes, we've spent a lot of time working in the tech space, but our approach is whenever we have a role internally within exceptional we're only a small um, social enterprise but we ask ourselves first why can't a neurodivergent person do this role so we've got roles like mine i'm in charge of kind of market growth marketing business development we've got people in in talent in operations in technology people on our board our board's got a, a representation of neurodivergent people so at every level of our organization there are neurodivergent people doing amazing things and that's because we ask ourselves that question first why can't someone who's neurodivergent do this role and uh, yeah it's kind of led to lived experience and insight into what are some of the barriers for people getting into open employment but also 
what are some of the things they're really amazing at? That's been our experience and, um, and we've got some amazing people as a result. I think that's such a great question. What is it that somebody's amazing at and what are the things that are getting in their way? And one of the things that you also mentioned is that you spend time working with employers because I, I see that often the focus is very much on the neurodivergent people and what do they need to do to be prepared to go into the workforce, but we equally need to spend the same amount of effort actually removing those barriers and those barriers ex- exist in the workplace and in the community. So it's good to see that you're doing some work there as well. Tracy, it's a great point. And when we when we started offering training, it was actually assumed that it was for the neurodivergent people. And if you look at any underrepresented group in terms of employment, any group that you might classify as disadvantaged, uh, there's a lot of intervention that happens on the supply side, so to speak. So the working with the individuals, whether they be... Yeah, communities of, of recently arrived um, migrants from non-English speaking backgrounds, wh- whatever the community. Our thought is that you know, hiring managers in organisations, HR, talent, senior leadership, they've got a crucial role to play and that intervention is probably underdone in terms of their building their capacity to what does a different hiring process kind of look like? How do you set people up for success? Yeah, we, we do do training now for individuals who want to get uh, uplift and, and upskilled into work. But for the first almost seven years of our existence, all of our training efforts were focused on shifting hiring managers and, and you know, uncovering bias and changing the way they hire, basically, and the way that they manage. Um, and often not in a wholesale way. Often we're talking about one or two modest adjustments that can make a huge difference for, for people. What do some of those modest adjustments look like? Is there some guidance that, you know, (laughs) a good place to start for people listening going, oh, you know what, I think I've got, because I think one of those things is that bias around individual contributor around technology is very common. So how do we then go, all right, well, how do we broaden that? Where should we start? Yeah, look, I think the starting point when we look at an inclusive process for recruitment, my suggestion would be is, can the assessment process, can the how you evaluate potential people coming into the organisation be as close to the role as possible? And so often we have you know, abstract tests or, or psychometric evaluations and things that may or may not be directly related to a role. So basically see if they can play. You know, Dan's in, in AFL territory, I love the footy. If you wanted to recruit someone for your team, you're not going to get them in a room and ask them curveball questions. You're going to put them in a, in a practice match and see how they play. So giving people work samples and things like that, give them a chance to demonstrate what they can do. Being as upfront as possible about the process and what to expect and not assuming that people are going to understand professional etiquette and things like that. So being really explicit about things like clothing, you know, what to, what to wear, give questions in advance if possible. I'll tell a quick anecdote. So we were working with an IT consultancy that goes in and makes um, system recommendations. And over the previous quarter, their talent team had interviewed 100 people and they'd hired 30. And so a lot of interviews, but basically that's all they did for the previous kind of quarter. And I asked how how they did it. And really the, the response surprised me in a way. They took people off site to a high sensory environment 
cafe usually, and they threw them curveball questions. And I just, in kind of in hearing that, I just asked one question, which is how do your consultants work when they go into an organisation? And I, I got a really detailed response. Oh, well, they go in and gather requirements on, on what the organisation's doing, what their goals are, what their current systems are, and they come back with detailed recommendations on, you know, what are some things that they might be able to change and what a roadmap might look like. And I kind of said, well, that's, that's how I thought you'd work. And, and the, I could see as the person was explaining how their consultants worked, they were realising that they were interviewing people in a way that was counter to how they actually worked. Because if you're paying a consultant sometimes several thousand dollars a day, you're not after them to give you curveball kind of responses. So, you're, like, you're not engaging them. Sorry, I can say that directly. But you're not engaging them to give off the hip responses. You're paying for their expertise and their diligence. So if you could find a way to assess how they might uncover needs and, and, and recommend a solution, rather than just asking them, kind of silly questions and putting them in a in an unrealistic kind of environment so that that would be some of the things tracy that i would uh, i would recommend i think also it's about showing in any way possible people you've already employed who are neurodivergent giving them an opportunity to kind of share their experience and actually being curious about them don't assume be curious about their experience because chances are you've already hired people who are neurodivergent they just mightn't be disclosing it matter of fact most don't so there hopefully there's some quick wins i think it's yeah not assuming and and as close as possible if your recruitment process can mirror what it is people are going to be doing that's going to give you the best chance of success yeah i really like as well how you've got all these different people across your organization really practicing what you're preaching as well that your organization has built with lived experience all the way through it i think that's fantastic that you've you've taken that approach so what are some of the benefits that you've seen from taking this approach in your organization look it brings a depth of kind of understanding it brings empathy for the candidate so we work for employers and we're working connecting people so to give you a stat around the people we're getting into work 68 percent of them over the last two years out of work, most of those for, t- for 12 months or more. So we're talking about people that are on disability support pensions or NDIS payments or they're, they're kind of self-funded but they're not working. And so, you know, for them often there's you know, a real sense of kind of failure or loss or, or whatever. It can be quite disempowering to be out of the workforce when you're actively looking. So having people with lived experience in lots of different parts gives us kind of perspective on on their experience, not so much being unemployed, but being neurodivergent. You know, people have come from bad kind of work environments and things like that. And also gives us a depth of understanding in speaking to employers. It's those biases, Tracy, that you were talking about before. It's it's actually having people with lived experience be able to kind of say, well actually you can't speak on behalf of every ADHD on the planet, but here's a couple of observations that I've got just based on what you're you're doing. And it does make us truly experts in that space around how neurodivergence shows up in the workplace because we've got a workplace that from day one, our first employee was an autistic gentleman who's still with us, does a great job in technology. We've worked alongside him for almost seven years now. And that just gives us such an understanding of day-to-day, the rhythm of the week, all sorts of things that kind of come up. So, yeah, I I don't think there's one kind of benefit from it. And it also means being selfishly, you know, we're an organisation that needs to deliver on objectives and things. It actually also means that we've tapped into 
some really amazing people that others kind of overlooked, to be frank, like um, being selfish. We've got some great people that we mightn't otherwise have got. That's kind of like that sneaky side benefit, isn't it? This is exciting. Yeah, and look, no no organisation we work with, you know, wakes up and their main objective is to solve the underemployment challenge for neurodivergent people. Like, we're realists. We help organisations solve talent problems, but with a deliberate focus on this underemployed, untapped group of people, as diverse as they are. But organisations have got to deliver on what they need to deliver on. So, Tracy, you were talking before about highlighting the strengths and you know, our approach is a strengths-based approach. Most often in you know, certainly providers and policymakers, often they're talking about a deficit-based kind of model in terms of what supports need. Our first approach is what are these people amazing at? That's what the organisations need. You know, they're actually, they're engaging us to find them people that are amazing, happen to be neurodivergent. Want to improve your co-design skills and confidence? Join Tracy Newman, the co-host of this podcast and Head of Impact at Impactor Consulting for the Co-Design for Impact training program. In this training, you'll explore co-design from start to finish, learning how to understand diverse stakeholder needs and create innovative solutions. You'll also get access to the co-design workbook with essential worksheets and connect with like-minded individuals from the social sector. Act fast because this popular course fills up quickly. Secure your spot now by clicking the link in this episode's show notes or visiting impactoconsulting.com.au forward slash co-design for impact. Remember, co-design for impact is one word with no hyphens. Don't miss this chance to enhance your co-design skills. Yeah, I'm hearing more and more as well that I think that perception is changing as well around like neurodivergent people. I really think like I was speaking to a mate the other day who runs a really successful group of car wash businesses. And he was saying that like he's like specifically is trying to find neurodivergent employees because they're fantastic at doing that all the different types of roles. You know, I, I think a few years ago that I don't know if I would have heard that so much, but I really feel like the value is starting to become known. Is that what you've found as well that people are sort of seeking you out now? Yeah. I mean, not as much as I'd like, but um, uh <laughs> Look, neurodiversities, I mean, it's a term that's been around since the, the late 90s. It was actually coined by a woman that lives in Sydney, Judy Singer, who was one of the first people to really challenge the medical model of understanding conditions like autism as, as something that needed to be managed. She thought, well, hang on, what is it about the way that their mind works? It's actually a real benefit. So, you know, neurodiversity is an umbrella term encompasses things like ADHD, autism, dyslexia. So it's relatively new. I mean, I'm neurodivergent. I'm ADHD, I've known that since I was 12, but 10 years ago, I'd never heard the term. I didn't know what it meant. It's not a widely known or understood thing. People understand conditions. Autism is well known in particular, and I think the media has a role to play there. So if you, you want to follow what kind of people are thinking about, searching about, look at what Netflix and, and the like are producing series on. And so you've got things like, yeah, the Big Bang Theory, but The Good Doctor, Atypical, Love on the Spectrum. You've got these multi-billion dollar organisations that really are data businesses. They're in the entertainment space, but they are data businesses in terms of understanding what people are looking for. And they wouldn't put money into those shows unless that was something that was Gaining. The challenge with those shows is it does continue on that stereotype of you know, largely male representation, you know, IT kind of interests, gamers, things like that. And part of why we hire as well multiple levels is actually to break that stereotype. 
Yeah, I was hearing when it comes to hiring, there is a real stereotype of male and technology individual contributor, but what sort of roles are you finding uh, where your focus is both now and into the future? So, look, it's a great question. So I mentioned in our organisation we've got people in HR, in operations, in yes, in technology, in sales, in marketing. You know, one of the interesting areas that we're going into that it kind of surprises people when we share it is disability care. We're actually running a, a program at the moment to get people who are neurodivergent and not working but want to go into careers in, in that sector. It's a growth sector, you know, 14 odd thousand roles this week advertised on SEEK as, as an example, but putting people into frontline care roles. And you know, one of the biases or perceptions is that autistic people in particular have low empathy or maybe don't show empathy it's actually like the opposite is true often they've got just really deep empathy and also they've got that lived experience and fantastic attention to detail and things like that and so there's not one job it's yeah lots of different parts lots of different organizations and also we talked about individual contributor before we exceptional ran a series last year where we profiled a lot of leaders who are neurodivergent. Uh, you know, one of them's a guy called Scott Howe who now lives in the, in the US and there's a blog that we wrote and an interview we did. Now, he's a, an ex-Royal Marine who was a you know, high-performance coach at the Sydney Swans and did some amazing things. And he kind of shared that people had said to him it's amazing because he came out that, okay, he's autistic and he's also dyslexic and things like that. And people were saying it's amazing you've achieved what you've achieved given your condition. And he actually said, no, no I, I achieved those things because of it, because of the way that he compartmentalises information, because of the structure that he has in his mind, the discipline he's had to have in his life to kind of care for himself. Let's translate it incredibly well into certain fields. So, you know, our next kind of frontier as well as kind of disability in those care sectors is actually getting more people and telling more stories about people who are leaders and who are brilliant leaders because of their neurodivergence, not in spite of it. Yeah, I love that. And it's, it's looking at it from a, you know, what strength do people bring to a role perspective rather than let's hire everybody that's the same and try and get them to do a role. You know, I think that's what's really changing in society is like, yeah, there's people out there with all sorts of different strengths, no matter what your background is or diagnosis is, how do we put people in roles that they're going to excel in? Um, And, you know, we all have different versions of that, which is really cool. The organization itself, obviously you've got a really strong mission and, you know, you're super passionate about it, but how did you get involved and how did it, where did it all sort of come from this, this idea to work in this space? Yeah, so I look, my background's in sales and marketing. Um, As I said before, I'm an ADHD or I've got neurodivergent family. I've always been interested in social enterprise and been a part of a couple of social enterprises and advised a few others. And I met met a guy called Mike who kind of come out here uh, originally from the UK who kind of had the idea of starting a a software testing business, so an IT service business and hiring autistic people. There's a few examples of this overseas in the UK and, and the US and other places. And what struck me was, aside from identifying with the cohort of people getting jobs, is you were taking a group of people that others saw as a, a challenge and, and often overlooked and were on the outer, but actually it's that strengths-based model and saying, no, no, there's actually not every case, not every autistic person wants to go and work in tech and test software applications, but 
enough do and they've got such great attention to detail often that they can make fantastic software testers. And sort of from that, we got kind of got the attention of you know, some media outlets and, and were fortunate enough to do some cool things like we won the Million Dollar Google Impact Challenge and Westpac and Optus Awards and things like that and kind of a whole bunch of crazy stuff happened in the first 18 months. And But what struck us at the start was businesses weren't that interested in software testers because they did that in-house or they had that kind of overseas. And so really early on we had to pivot in so that, well, we actually need to be getting people into work directly with these organisations. That's how you change culture. You don't change culture necessarily by offering a you know, kind of technology service that's outsourced. You change culture by having people in the tent in these organisations and training those organisations. So that's kind of where we're at now. And so we've expanded the industries, expanded the focus in terms of neurodivergence, but the same core mission, which has been from the start, let's get people who are neurodivergent and out of work into work and into meaningful work. So you mentioned the stat around the people that you predominantly work with. What sort of success rate are you seeing in terms of people going into roles? Because I think that's one of the real challenges, isn't it? So it's the first challenge is finding somebody a role, but then the second challenge is making sure that the work that you've done with the employer to make sure that they know how to create an environment of success actually translates into somebody being able to stay in a role and flourish in that role. Yeah, yeah, look, great point. And look, we would, I mean, we would rather not put someone into a role than have them go into a role and have them churn over in a short space of time. So our kind of turnover rate is around 7 or 8% at a 12-month mark, which is, yeah, look, significantly ahead of, you know, most typical kind of turnover rates. And there's design in that. So, yeah, we look, we get people into work and we offer a talent service, but like we're not a kind of dump and run kind of operation. So we we work with the organisation. So what we'll do is we'll do some design around their process. We'll rewrite job ads for them if we need to. We'll advise them on interview questions and panel size and, and all sorts of stuff so that the front door is kind of amended. And some organisations push back at that because they think they're not going to make a merit-based kind of approach if they make concessions. Our advice is, well, if you're worried about that, do it for everyone. What we're often trying to make up for is acute social anxiety and, and sometimes a lack of verbal processing with some of our candidates who they're struggling to hear and, and in the moment respond in an appropriate way. They're often really socially anxious meeting people. So we want to actually give them an opportunity to be their best self. So we do that. And then once people are kind of placed and in a role, um, sorry, before they land, we've done some training with the organisation. So we do a lot of training around understanding neurodivergence in the workplace, how to manage, how to assign tasks, how to provide feedback. And we also put a buddy in place that's you know works with the individual and the manager. Um, it, really, it's about long-term sustainable kind of success for that person. And you know, the joy is getting them into work, seeing them stay in work. We've had several cases now where people have actually been promoted. Some cases where, and yeah, this is almost the gold standard, where people have applied for a role with an organisation, they've been knocked back, they've come to us, they've gone through an alternative process, they've got into a role, we've supported them in that, but they're, they're the stars and they've been promoted. I think it's the message to the employer is you're passing on really good people sometimes. 
And so uh, that's that's kind of what we do in terms of making sure that they stay. Because as, as I said, yeah, it's you know, disaster is putting people in and that not working. I think the, the one caveat to that, Tracy, is often organisations, particularly large organisations, think that the environment has to be perfect. I've had literally, I've had people say to me, uh, we just need to wait, you know, Dan, I love what you're doing, but you know, we just got to wait for the environment to be perfect. There's some change going on at the moment. Uh, I kind of say, well, like, when's that going to happen? Like, don't put them in the week before Christmas, but it's like, aside from that, like, when when is there going to be no change? And so, you know, we're talking about people that have had to be resilient their lives. They've had to be adaptable. They've got some great skills. We're giving them advice on how to set them up for success. But, yeah, don't wait for perfect. Yeah, that's so common, isn't it? It's like, well, you know, we just want to be ready. We want to make sure that we've done everything. We've got some other focuses at the moment. We'll get to it. But, yeah. Yeah, the assumption there is that people need cotton wool. That they need to be, you know, managed and there's lots of supervised kind of hours and, and all that sort of stuff. And that's just not the case. You know, best way you expose that is showing people that, giving people a voice who are already in the organisation who they didn't know and you're a divergent. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really powerful, isn't it? Aaron, it sounds like you're doing some uh, great work there. If anyone would like to connect further with the organisation or even just learn a little bit more about what you do, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, look, thanks, Stan and, and Tracy. Um, look, two ways, really. Uh, our website, so exceptionalwithanx.io. Uh, there's a lot of resources. We, we write blogs and, and have content like a, you know, guides for managers on understanding how to talk about neurodivergence and, and questions to ask. Uh, and on, on LinkedIn, I'm quite prolific on, on LinkedIn, more than happy to connect with people that have questions. So, yeah, feel free to reach out to me directly. That's great. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I think you know, hearing a, a little bit more about the story, more than what was covered over the beer with Gareth at the Opera House Bar uh, has been really, really interesting. Uh, I love that you're, you're trying to change the system out there. You're doing some great work around helping people broaden their horizons around what is possible uh, and it's a much needed uh, service. And I think you're, you know, you're offering some great things. So thanks for taking some time out of your busy day to share that with our listeners. Um, I'm sure everybody's taken uh, not only some inspiration around what they can do, but also some some ideas around how they as employers could also probably do more in that space as well. So thanks so much, Aaron. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Innovate for Impact podcast. Any links to what we spoke about today will be posted in the show notes. If you'd like to know more about social innovation, visit our website where we have a heap of tools to help you on your way. Visit impactoconsulting.com.au. Thanks for listening. Now go out there and make an impact.